Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series and Podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Keith Rothfuss, former congressman for Pennsylvania's 12th Congressional District, join us to discuss the imperative to disrupt terror financing. Congressman Rothfuss will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Congressman Keith Rothfuss. Stacy, thank you. Uh, I hope you can all hear me okay trying this technology from my home office in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's great to be with you and, and to be with the Middle East Forum. Um, very important topic we're talking about today, the importance of disrupting financing uh, that goes to and from bad actors around the world. We saw this, of course, uh, following the September uh, 11th attacks 20 years ago now, and the importance of tracing funds, where they go, how they get into the hands of bad actors. And uh, ever since, it's been a significant part of our foreign policy apparatus. If I could uh, drop back a little bit and try to give you an outline of the infrastructure of how we track terror financing, terror financing and, and the framework that, that has been put in place over the last few decades, um, call it uh, anti-money laundering 101 for lack of a better term. But our framework for squeezing the bad actors out of our financial system uh, has, has been a work in progress for 50, more than 50 years now. Uh, we have several layers of laws regulations and policies that have the goal of ensuring that groups and individuals are denied access to the world's financial system. And why would we wanna deny access to the financial system for these bad actors? Two reasons. Number one is we don't want them to be laundering the proceeds that they have earned uh, through their nefarious deeds into legitimate businesses. And second, we want to prevent them from moving funds to facilitate the commitment of, Ill of illegal acts and terrorism. Last year, we marked the 50th anniversary in the United States uh, of the Bank Secrecy Act. This is the foundational law on which the rest of our, the United States, AML, CFT, uh, countering the finance of terrorism uh, of policies are based. The BSA, as we call it, of 1970, established re reporting requirements for financial institutions. Under the act, these institutions are required to report to the federal government transactions that exceed $10,000 or that are deemed to be suspicious. And since the 1970 Bank Secrecy Act, any number of issues have popped up over the years and it's become somewhat of a whack-a-mole where an issue pops up, we decide we need another law, we have to sharpen something, broaden something. Uh, that's what we've been doing. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, there were a series of amendments and additions to the Bank Secrecy Act that both broadened and sharpened our government's tools for combating money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism, including laws that established money laundering as a federal crime, introduced civil and criminal forfeiture for BSA violations, expanded the de definition of financial institutions to include car dealers and real estate closers, increased penalties, and increased regulation of money services businesses. In 2001, Congress passed the Patriot Act as part of our response to the 2001 terrorist attacks. Among other things, the Patriot Act criminalized the financing of terrorism and augmented the existing BSA framework 
by strengthening customer identifi identification procedures, prohibited financial institutions from engaging in business with foreign shell banks, improved information sharing between financial institutions and the US government by requiring government institution information sharing and voluntary information sharing among financial institutions. It increased civil and criminal penalties for money laundering. And it provided the Secretary of the Treasury with the authority to impose, quote, special measures on jurisdictions, institutions, or transactions that are, a, are, that are of primary money laundering concern. More recently, Congress adopted a number of changes to our anti-money laundering framework when it passed the National Defense Authorization Act this past December. Among the most significant changes in this piece of legislation, we're putting into the United States Code our basic law, requirements on the disclosure of beneficial ownership of companies. The creation of a whistleblower program to protect those who report violations of the nation's AML CFT laws. A directive for the Treasury Department to evaluate our current framework for currency transaction reports and suspicious activity reports. This has been a significant issue for our financial institutions who have aggregated a tremendous amount of data uh, over the over the years, and some question whether all this data is necessary, or if there could be a more strategic way to to track uh, these transactions. There's been an expansion of the BSAs, the Bank Secrecy Act's applicability to antiquities dealers. The National Defense Authorization Act last December also amended various definitions that appear intended to capture virtual currencies and other non-traditional cash substitutes. The act also created a FinCEN exchange to facilitate voluntary public-private information sharing among law enforcement, national security agencies, and financial institutions. And it launched a number of significant studies, including those related to artificial intelligence, blockchain, and other emerging technologies, beneficial ownership reporting requirements, trade-based money laundering, and money laundering by the People's Republic of China. Now, in addition to this legal framework, our AML CFT structure includes a number of policy guidelines and involves US federal agencies interaction with nations around the world. The policy guidelines in effect in the United States that are regularly updated include our national money laundering risk assessment, our national terrorist financing risk assessment, our national proliferation financing risk assessment, and the National Illicit Finance Strategy. Our AML CFT regime is coordinated and led through the Treasury Department, oftentimes in coordination with our Department of Justice and the State Department. At Treasury, the AML CFT work falls within the Office of the Undersecretary for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. There are a number of units under that Undersecretary. The Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, this is America's financial intelligence unit and coordinates with its counterparts throughout the world through an organization called the Egmont Group. We also have an assistant secretary for terrorism financing. This is the policy shop in our, in our government dealing with issues arising under terror financing. And it's the United States counterpart to the International Financial Action Task Force or FATF. Our Office, of Foreign, our Office of Foreign Asset Controls, or, or OFAC, 
promulgate sanctions against entities and individuals. We also have an Office of Intelligence and Analysis under the Undersecretary. We have a, a holdup right now in the United States uh, with respect to the Undersecretary's slot. President Biden nominated Brian Nelson to serve in that role. His hearing was a couple of weeks ago before the Senate Banking Committee. Senators Toomey and Menendez are looking for assurances that Brian Nelson would follow through on sanctions on Iran, China, and Russia, and are saying that they would hold that nomination. Uh, th that's uh, uh, pending out there right now. I, I'm reaching out to the Senator's office to find out if we have any scheduled dates yet on, the, on a confirmation vote. Uh, but that is an issue that we're looking at right now in the United States. Uh, the Biden administration is uh, singing a different song from what the Trump administration uh, has done on, on sanctions. Uh, we see that there are efforts to start to lessen the sanctions, for example, on Iran as a way to coax Iran back to the table for negotiating on, a, on a, the nuclear deal. Uh, it, it does not look good from my perspective, uh, where I think that the Biden administration is giving up a good bit of leverage. The sanctions have been proven to be very effective with respect to Iran, uh, but we'll see what the next uh, few weeks would hold as these uh, negotiations continue, and particularly as we look at this undersecretary slot and what assurance is gonna be made. But we also have issues related to China and Russia that are of concern, for example, to Senators Toomey and Menendez. Uh, China has been uh, uh, violating uh, sanctions by taking Iran's oil. Uh, again, Iran, we know, continues to be the world's number one state sponsor of terror. Uh, these are very important tools that we have in our toolkit, and it would be hoped that voices can be raised, both in Congress and elsewhere, uh, to hold the Biden administration's feet to the fire uh, to make sure that we are exerting maximum pressure on the bad actors uh, in the world. And with that, I'd be happy to take uh, some questions. All right, thank you so much. So the first question then is from Jay Lewis. Uh, how well are these laws doing in stopping terror financing? Uh, they're, they're very effective and in, in, uh, we are continually tracking the flows of the terror. That's not to say that there, a lot of work still needs to be done, obviously. Um, uh, there's significant amounts of money that get uh, pushed around the world. Uh, I cannot give you the percentage of, of transactions that we catch, uh, but they're, they're, these are very important tools and they can always be sharpened. As you saw last uh, December with the National Defense Authorization Act, one of the big issues uh, that came out of that was beneficial ownership, uh, the use of shell companies. Uh, so for the first time, the United States is gonna be requiring disclosure uh, at the federal level uh, of who the beneficial owners of a company are. Uh, there's some criticisms as to whether or not they're, they're, they're broad enough. Uh, I, th I think the number is 20%. If you're a 20% stakeholder, you have to be disclosed. Uh, again, part of the, the law that was passed last December will also be studying the effect of these beneficial ownership rules. Uh, that's all a work in progress right now, but that's been a very uh, uh, significant area of concern, even going back to the days when I was uh, serving on the committee, the House Financial Services Committee, um, where we heard a lot of concern about beneficial ownership of, of, of companies. Thank you. So in regards to, to your last point on China violating the sanctions against Iran, uh, what actions would be taken against them to, to stop that? 
again, you would have to take a look at uh, how, how our sanctions uh, program works. We take a look at individuals and or entities that are deemed to be violating the sanctions. And uh, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls is the unit within our Treasury Department that identifies these individuals. And then you're not supposed to be allowing these individuals and entities access to our financial uh, uh, institutions. And if they are, there are fines um, and they should be enforced. Understood. So economically speaking, are these fines enough to, to stop this? They have been uh, proven to be a deterrent. Uh, are they enough of a deterrent? Uh, again, take a look at what's happening. China is currently flaunt, uh, flaunting these. So I would, I would suggest that maybe they're not enough and we have to find other points of leverage. Uh, and it would also help if we had an administration that was serious about uh, bringing Iran back uh, to the table. If, if they want to fall back to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, which had any number of issues. Uh, one of the significant was this, the lack of any time anywhere inspections and the ability of Iran to continue down the path to creating a nuclear weapon by allowing it to continue to have centrifuges. Um, and even the, under the timeline that was in the original JCPOA, a lot of those deadlines would be approaching now anyway. Uh, that was one of the criticisms we had years ago uh, is that it did not stop the, the, uh, Iran's path to nuclear weapons. Um, and so, yeah, I think there, there is a lot of room to strengthen uh, these sanctions that we have. Thank you. And in regards to the, the current administration, our question is, realistically, how much can we expect from terror financing when the Biden administration is determined to send aid to the Palestinians in violation of the Taylor Force Act, which will go to the coffers of Hamas into the PA pay to slay program? Well, I think what you really have to do is put the pressure on members of Congress. Um, we know that it's a divided Congress. In the Senate, we have a 50-50. Again, you look at uh, Senator Menendez uh, right now talking about holding up the nomination of a key undersecretary at the Treasury Department. Uh, if, if we want to exert our maximum pressure on the Biden administration, you have to do it through your representatives in the House and the Senate. And I would say that some of these senators are listening. Uh, they're getting the message. And if they're insisting that, for example, the new Undersecretary of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence put in writing that they're gonna enforce sanctions, I think that's a good thing. Uh, it goes to the credibility of the Biden administration. Uh, uh, and I would, on the House side, so you have the Senate 50-50, the House side, there's a bare majority of Democrats in, in, in the House right now, uh, particularly in the swing districts. Uh, there are Democrats who are very concerned about terror financing. Um, and I think you need to make your, your voices heard uh, with respect to these individuals. Thank you. And from Francois Lebon, uh, how do you reconcile the benefits of sanctions directed at blocking legitimate ac uh, assets of cash uh, from a country like Iran without depriving the country of its monetary resources to finance legitimate trade and programs for its citizens? Uh, when you have a country that's being the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world, it's hard to imagine uh, uh, that fact, uh, uh, um, having anything trump that fact. Uh, you wanna put maximum pressure on a country like Iran. Look, if Iran wants to be part of the community of nations, it needs to stop exporting terrorism. It needs to stop its nuclear development. It's, it, this is all in Iran's hands. 
so if, they, if they're experiencing difficulties uh, as a result of the sanctions regime, it's on Iran. It's not on, on people who want Iran to be part of the community of civilized nations. Understood, thank you. And are there any banking institutions that are outside of this government reach that, that terrorist financing are, are using? One of the issues that people are starting to pay a lot of attention to, and, he, and Secretary Yellen has talked about the use of cryptocurrencies. Um, I, I've taken a, a, a bit of a look at it. There is more disclosure uh, on some of these platforms than one realizes. It's, it's not all impossible to trace. I've actually sat down with some investigators and watched to see how they can, uh, with this open source blockchain, uh, and you can identify who some of the, the actors are, or, or, and, and some of the platforms you can identify all the actors. Now, there are some others that are more difficult to, to find out uh, who's behind it, um, and that's all going to be subject of uh, review uh, under the National Defense Authorization Act from last December, uh, looking at uh, th th this new technology, these, these new cryptocurrencies, as it were, um, and trying to identify and bring into the sunshine uh, you know, where these flows are going. Because again, you don't want to ha have uh, areas where the bad actors can be shifting around their, their sources. One of the big areas that we've learned about over the years is this trade-based money laundering, um, where invoices would be inflated uh, to hide the value of imports or exports. And it's a way that the uh, Hezbollah, for example, is used to uh, get money uh, out of Latin America uh, back into the Middle East. And do you think there will be amendments to the, the BSA, for instance, uh, to, to counter this cryptocurrency use? I would, uh, I would think so. Um, again, there are a lot of people looking at it right now. People have been looking at it, uh, cryptos for uh, several years from a regulatory perspective, trying to figure out how we uh, don't squelch innovation and squelch the good uh, and efficient use of, of these products uh, without allowing them to be used for nefarious purposes. Thank you. A uh, question from our audience. Can democratic countries win against autocratic countries such as China and Iran? Uh, if, it's a question of the will. It, it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, we know that uh, uh, our ideas are superior. Um, it's been a little disconcerting to see the Biden administration unilaterally, in a sense, disarm on some of these sanctions with respect to Iran. Uh, China has a bevy of problems um, that it's facing right now, uh, command and control economies. It may be an autocrat autocratic country, but it's also a command and control country. And inevitably, that catches up with them. Uh, there are oversupply issues. Uh, look what's happening in Cuba just this weekend. Uh, it's not just about COVID. The people of Cuba want freedom. Uh, and to have uh, the Biden administration suggest that it's all about COVID. Again, if, you're, if, if you put out a narrative and you, and you believe in a narrative as opposed to facts, well, that's, that's on you. Uh, but we have to confront the autocrat regimes uh, and put out our alternative because it's a far more attractive one. Um, China has been going around uh, the world with its Belt Road Initiative uh, over the last decade, uh, trying to get countries to 
to sign on with it. Uh, but look, look at Hong Kong, look at the threat to, high, to Taiwan. Uh, I think people are becoming aware of, of the threat that China is, uh, and it's, it's none too soon. Thank you. And with the US pulling out of Afghanistan, will this have any effect on, on terror financing in any way? I think we need to watch Pakistan. Um, and this is, you look at the 20 years we've been in Afghanistan and, and why has it taken so long? Have we been as aggressive with Pakistan as we could have been? Have we been as aggressive with Iran, for example, as we could have been? The, the, destabil the destabilization in Afghanistan is, is, has many fathers. Um, and you talk about it being the graveyard of empires, but over the last 20 years, we've seen Iran, we've seen uh, the Pakistani intelligence, we've seen Russia, all have an interest in destabilizing that country. After the tremendous resources we put in, the tremendous loss of life our troops, the, the, the tremendous number of injuries our troops have sustained, uh, and it, we, we need to keep an eye on Pakistan. That's, we, we know along the border region that uh, there are many terrorist organizations there. Has Pakistan done everything it could? I don't think so. Pakistan, it, it, Osama bin Laden was, was, was hiding in Pakistan for years. Uh, we still don't know where uh, al-Zwahiri is. He was the number two and now the number one in al-Qaeda. Uh, where is he? And does Pakistan know? Do Pakistani intelligence know? I think we can put a lot more pressure on Pakistan than we have. And, and so as we look at Afghanistan, you can't look at Afghanistan in isolation. You have to look at the surrounding countries and, and the interests they have. And, and again, I'm gonna go back to Iran and what Iran has been doing with respect to Afghanistan. And, and it was in Iran's interest for the United States to be out of Afghanistan. And what have they been doing partly in the Western part of the country? Uh, um, so, so again, if you have people who are realistic about the bad actors in the world, and not buying into some false narrative, uh, I think we'd be in a better spot. So you were explaining how this is this is really a global phenomenon with Iran using Latin America, for instance. Uh, how well exactly is the law enforcement sharing working for this policy? It, it, it's it's challenge uh, because you not number one, it's it's tough to track these groups and individuals to begin with. But when you have business interests, when you have um, one country wanting to cut a deal with another country and there's commercial interest involved, it, it's, it becomes almost a, a Rubik's cube where you're trying to line up the colors uh, on the right side uh, before you get everybody to go forward. Um, you know, with respect to Iran, this never got enough attention years ago. Uh, actually, Politico ran a story uh, during the negotiation of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of, uh, of Action, the, the Iran nuclear deal, where we, we were tracking some uh, relationships between Hezbollah and one of the Mexican drug cartels. But because the, the Obama administration was so intent on getting Iran to the table and getting a deal done, they backed off on the investigation of that connection between Hezbollah and the Mexican drug cartel. Uh, that's not in our interests, <laughs> not at all. Uh, I, I think we, have, we, can, we 
can be much more aggressive with respect to the Mexican drug cartels, both now and years ago. Uh, but you ask, you know, how are these uh, agencies around the world working together? It, it depends. Yes, it's important to exercise diplomacy, uh, but we should be exerting and exhorting our partners who believe in freedom, who believe in, in true tolerance, uh, that Iran uh, and to an extent China are not our friends here. And that takes some moral uh, suasion, some moral leadership uh, coming out of Washington, DC. It's not this, uh, you know, everybody's exceptional kind of mantra that you saw under the, the Obama, Obama administration, President Obama, about, well, every country's exceptional. No, our, the United States is exceptional for a reason. Um, it's the place that has uh, re really believed in, in God-given liberty and freedom. And, and the fruit of that has been the most remarkable country the earth has ever seen. And so in your opinion, what can Biden learn going forward in renegotiating the JCPOA from the, the Obama administration's well, mistakes? Yeah. Well, again, does he even concede that there were mistakes in the Biden or the Obama administration? Uh, or was everything that President Trump did a, a mistake? Well, I don't think new peace deals between Arab nations in the Gulf and Israel, you know, were bad things. I think there were good things and they came about because of a constructive engagement on the part of America uh, with, with new partners now in the Middle East uh, with a realistic foreign policy. But when you give uh, room for, for the Hamas's of the world who think that one day Israel will no longer exist I mean, this was a whole premise of, of, of the Trump administration. Israel's going nowhere. Israel has a right to exist. And until players in the region, in the Middle East, accept that, uh, um, you're, you're going to have trouble because they're grasping the Hamas, uh, Hezbollah, whoever's over there um, who would like to see Israel driven into the sea. It's not going to happen. And uh, if you give any breath to organizations that believe that, th then you stall the day of a, a true peace that can come. Thank you so much for that from Francois Lebonnekin. Uh, do you consider that existing measures are sufficient to stop the rebirth of an ISIS type caliphate led by rogue military personnel? I, I think you have to, um, yeah, I think we do. It's a matter of will. If we want to do it, if we want to exert uh, uh, pressure, influence, whatever you want to call it, uh, on people in the in the region where ISIS would develop, then it can be done. I, I, again, you look at how you know four years of the Trump administration did a good job of uh, wiping out the territory that ISIS uh, had held. Uh, taking you back from ISIS, um, but that can grow again. If you don't have a realistic view of who these people are, if you come back in the way President Obama did, referring to ISIS as the quote JV team and don't have a serious uh, view of who they are, or if you think you can go in and just destabilize regimes in, in the Middle East the way Secretary, then Secretary of State Clinton did with uh, both Libya and Syria, uh, uh, without having a plan, 
of how to deal uh, with, with what government would take its place, then we're going to see some real turmoil over there. Yes, indeed. Uh, so in our last few minutes here, what more, in your opinion, could be done to, to curtail terror financing? I think awareness is number one. I think we have to understand that there are bad actors out there who want to exploit the world's financial system. I think that we can do more to take a look at the connection uh, between the narco traffickers and the terror groups. I think we go back to what Hezbollah was trying to do with the Mexican drug cartels. Uh, I, I think nowhere near the attention uh, um, that's necessary has been put on the transnational criminal organizations like the, the uh, uh, I think it's a Ulisco uh, Nueva Generacion is, is one of the more uh, troublesome cartels in, in Mexico. Understand over the last 20 years, 300,000 people have been murdered with impunity. Only 5% of the murders in Mexico are prosecuted. Uh, they have been exporting all of the heroin that we use in the United States. Uh, the lion's share of the fentanyl that comes from China, comes through Mexico, through these drug cartels. Uh, tens of billions of dollars sloshing around that financial system. Uh, we can be doing a lot better there. Uh, and then when you start to look at how the world, the world's transnational criminal organizations and terrorist organizations may be working together, there's a lot of room uh, uh, to be working. Thank you. And do you have hope? <laughs> Always have hope. You know, uh, again, uh, I think when you, part of the problems with our politics today is that everything is boiled down to a, a tweet or a 30 second soundbite or a quote narrative. Uh, people need to be willing to peel back the layers of the onion, ask a few pointed questions, uh, get to the truth of things, not a narrative. Uh, we want the truth. We don't want a narrative. Uh, and to understand that, yeah, we all want a day, a world where there is not conflict when, when there is peace, but there are people who are always out there trying to uh, press uh, their advantage. And some of these are very bad people. Uh, um, you look at what's been happening in Hong Kong over the last several years, uh, the newspaper that was just crushed over there with, with dissidents in jail. Um, again, I, I'm not hearing anything from the Biden administration on that. I'm, <laughs> I cited this thing last night that came out from the Biden State Department uh, on the Cuba demonstrations being about COVID. Well, that's just not true. And so we need to continue to press uh, for truth as opposed to narrative. Thank you so much. It comes to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Congressman Rothfuss. It's been for a pleasure. A lot, lot of resources out there. If folks want to take a look at the Treasury's website on, on OFAC, the Office of Officer Foreign Asset Controls. Lots of information there. Thanks oh, for perfect. having me. Of course. Thank you. And Bye -bye. for our viewers and listeners, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you.